Hi, Smoke and Miffy Gotham listeners. This is one half of your team flying solo. I'm actually on a short leave right now to finish a project, but not long ago, I recorded this conversation with the author, Laura McCowan. I met Laura back in 2015 when I went on a podcast she was doing back then about early sobriety called Home. We became friends, and over the next years, I watched as she became something of a star in the sober world. Her 2020 memoir, We Are the Luckiest, is one of my favorites in a genre that people often call quit lit. Her new book is Push Off From Here, Nine Essential Truths to Get You Through Sobriety and Everything Else. We talked a lot about drinking, why we loved it, why we had to walk away from it, the pros and cons of 12-step programs, and if alcoholic is a meaningful label. But our conversation is more fundamentally about change, how hard it can be, but how rewarding. We also talk about dating, debt, Instagram addictions, and our relationships with our own bodies. I took a lot away from this conversation with Laura, and I hope you do too. Smoke Laura McCowan. Sarah. Welcome to my singles edition of Smoke 'em If You Got 'em. Oh, it's the singles edition. I yeah. love that. Yeah. I mean, you're not single, but I, and I, that's not even what the single refers to. It's just simply that my better half, Nancy Rommelman, is not here and, yeah. and I like to go out solo sometimes. So that's what we're doing. Um, Laura, you and I have been friends for a while now, um, but you might be a new name to -hmm. some of our listeners. Uh, I went on your website today, your excellently curated website, (laughs) um, to kind of look at like, what would I think of Laura if I were just seeing her for the first time? Mm -hmm. And these are the things that caught my attention. She has great hair. She has a lot of tattoos. (laughs) And she loves a sun flare. (laughs) I had a sun flare type photo shoot. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, I really want to do this type of thing. Girl, and- you can work a sun flare. <laughs> Thank you. That's so funny. Um, sun flare and tattoos. Yeah. Don't you forget the really great hair because you've got the beachy waves, the brown beachy waves. <laughs> thank you. I don't know if I've ever been told that I have great hair, but thank yeah. you. Thank yeah. You. But um, for our friends who might like a more robust explanation of who you are. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, you don't need to go into like super, uh, you know, Charles Dickens depth, but kind of like where you came from and how you ended up a a writer. Yeah. Uh, I came from the great state of Colorado (laughs) and I was born there and grew up there and then moved to Boston when I was- Where in Colorado were you living? Uh, Castle Rock is right. It's right south of Denver. Oh, interesting. That I know that name from Stephen King books, but he's talking about Castle Rock, Maine. Yeah, different Castle Rock. Yeah, it's it's like a it was a tiny nothing town when I grew up. No movie mm. theater. No, you know, we had to drive to Denver. No mall. We had to drive to Denver to do anything. And now it's like this hot spot. It's right between Denver and Colorado Springs. Of course, of course. So I lived there. Grew up there. Um, moved to Colorado. I went to to college there, and right after college, moved to Boston, and fell in love with the East Coast. Fell in love with Boston. I, um, you know, my 
a lot of my writing is tied or the, my start in writing is tied to my drinking. So yeah. <clears throat> I was a, a very big drinker until, uh, about eight years ago, you know, I got married in Boston. I had a kiddo. I have a 14 year old, which sounds so wild. I, I have a 14 year old daughter. 14. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. She was six or seven when I got, is that true? I can't do math. Anyway, she was young when I got sober. And um, I was a marketing, like, advertising girl. I had a, that was where I, what I went to school for. That was, you know, my first several jobs were in agencies and I That strikes me as a good job to have as a drinker. um, An amazing job. I remember like, you know, they all have their, the, it is very Mad Men-esque. Like that's not just Mm -hmm. a trope. It's very much like that. And even still, and I would go into interviews and be just enamored with the, you know, the bar setup that they had and, you know, would even like gauge how much I wanted to work at a place based on how much booze I could see was available. Totally. (laughs) To anyone at any time. So, but I, I hit the wall with drinking in 2013 and started to write right around then. I had Mm -hmm. always kept blogs and, you know, I'd always been a journaler, but as far as I know, I am a, you know, essayist, memoirist. I don't know if I could write fiction. So all the things I wanted to write were about myself. And I couldn't tell the truth about anything because I always had so many secrets. So mm. anything I would write was very vague and not good. And um, when I got sober, though, I had, you know, I had a motivation to tell the truth, but also I was desperate. And so and I quickly realized that writing the truth about what was going on with me was life-saving and cathartic and helpful. And I started doing that on a blog and started getting a few essays published in you know, various small online publications and did that, like really pushed that hard for two, three years from 2013 to 16. And I started a podcast called Home Podcast uh, when I was very newly sober and uh, quit my job in advertising in 2016 and kind of set off to vaguely do what I'm doing now. I didn't have a whole lot of a plan. I just knew that I wanted to be an author and I figured out other things along the way to support myself in doing that. Um, My first book came out in 2020 January. And can I tell the audience a few things about We the Luckiest? We yes, are the luckiest. Please. Sure. Um, there are two books that people like to come up to me and say, uh, I like your book, Sarah, but I liked this other book better. Oh my God. And uh, people don't actually say that, do they? Yes, they do. But <laughs> I, they do it with love because. What they usually say is, you know, like, I'm not really as heavy a drinker as you were. Like, I didn't really have a, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the two books are This Naked Mind by Annie Grace, Mm -hmm. which I have actually never read, but uh, I'm going to ask you about it later. Um, And the other one is yours. We are the luckiest. Huh. And uh, the reason they usually say yours, they will usually go on to explain, well, I'm a mom. Yeah, right. And her drinking just looked a lot like mine. And I identified so deeply with it. Yeah. The mom piece is a lot 
is is a lot for people who are mother, you know mothers because that shame is just so specific yeah. and so tough to deal with that it makes sense that 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 would be the thing you have a new book called push off from here um and we're going to talk about a lot of different things but i wonder if you could tell us where that name comes from yeah it came from a woman in my very first aa meeting who i I was 2013 i had just I talk about this and we are the luckiest, but I had just had the worst, you know, sort of bottom night that I would experience. I had many before and after, but I had left, I would gone to my brother's wedding in Denver and brought my daughter who was four years old at the time. And I blacked out the night of the wedding and left her alone in our hotel room Mm. and slept somewhere else. And luckily she found her way to my mom and she was fine and I was, you know, fine in terms of like the, the the things that could have happened, of course, are um awful to consider and none of those things happened. The the thing that happened though was I was busted. Like this private drinking uh thing. I I everyone knew I had a problem or most people knew if that were close to me, but it was like they were all playing along, especially my family, because they drank a lot. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, all right, you know, now we're worried for her daughter. And so it was this, it forced me to go to my first meeting. It forced me to try to stop drinking for the first time ever. I never had tried to stop. And at that first AA meeting in Boston, I you know, cried and sobbed and snot coming out of my nose as one does in their first meeting usually. And um, it was all women. It was like very small, 12 women or so. And one of them came up to me afterwards and like put her hands on my shoulders and made me face her. And she said, you know, I, I'm a mother too. And I just want you to know that you can push off from here. Like mm. you can leave, you can leave this behind. And I never saw her again. I don't know who she is, but those words really stuck with me and they carried a lot of meaning. Uh, I I have a whole chapter called Push Off From Here in We Are the Luckiest that sort of explains all the meaning loaded into those four words. Um, And then when this book came out, uh, it was just sort of obvious that that would be the title. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The book is about nine points that I that come from a letter, uh, a letter I wrote to a woman who wrote me. Uh, I wrote her a response, trying to guide her on what to say to her sister who was struggling with alcohol. And then these nine points were what was in that letter. You know, like here, just say this. If you don't, if if everything I've said before now doesn't make sense or it's too much, just use these nine points. And and those points became the basis for this for push off from here. Just to give people a little sense of what the points are like, can you give us point one and two? Yeah. So one is it's not your fault. And two is it is your responsibility. I always loved that. I remember the first time I saw that you posted it on Instagram Mm -hmm. and I was like, that's a really good way to say the salient points, which is that people blame themselves. They blame themselves. They blame themselves. That's really not like, it's not that. Mm -mm. 
Um, but it is your responsibility. And I think that's the piece that so many things that try to focus on, like, hey, it's not your fault. They, they, they forget that piece. Right. Um, right. Or it is your responsibility. They forget that we don't control everything. Exactly. This isn't a meritocracy. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And there's, you know, there's genetic cards that were dealt. There's a culture you lived in. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of things that you absorbed. Um, You know, that story about your daughter, um, you know, I've been in AA now uh, more than 12 years and I've heard so many stories, you know, I've heard, you know, dudes get up there and talk about stabbing people and going to prison. I've I've heard people talk about car crashes, Mm. um, you know, nearly drinking themselves to death. I I really could just go on and on about the number of things I've heard people talk about. I have very rarely heard mothers talk about the kind of story you just told. Yeah. The same. The woman, the first time I heard another mother say anything about, you know, her children um, was like life-changing for me. That was a huge turning point for me because I'd never heard those stories either. And they're not in books really, um, or at least ones that I've read. So it was, it was a woman in an AA meeting. She was had grown children. So she, and she had been in the program for 30 some years and she, but she told this story as if it just happened. Um, it was that fresh to her, but also I could see that she was at peace with it all and like accepted it. She wasn't like carrying around the shame and that I just at that point could not fathom ever being in that place. I thought this would just be a thing that would eat me alive I would learn to live with it, you know, like this big gaping wound, but it would just eat me alive forever. And, you know, she had done something similar. She'd left her kids alone for hours at a time to go be with men. And she talked about that. And she said at the end of that share, you know, addiction is stronger than love until it isn't. Mm. And that totally changed my trajectory. You know, and and I should say that although I've never heard those stories from the podium, I have heard them in private conversations. Yeah, with uh, friends of mine who are mothers who are maybe struggling. Right, and they're very, very private stories. Right, very tender to the touch. Yes, because um, we have a special. My friend, my. <laughs> My the guy I was dating at the time when I was very new said to me, "Yeah, no one talks about this stuff, Laura, because there's a special vitriol for mothers who drink, like even in recovery communities." I have the most like foundationally non-judgmental makeup, you know, mm. but even I get a little bit like, "How can you? What can you? What you can't?" You can't do that. Mm-hmm. It flies in the face of everything that we are like, you know, because you have a mother. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we all have mothers and we all have this, you know, that it just flies in the face of like nature. Yeah. 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 And and so while we're on this topic, I don't want to dwell too much here, but I, I do want to hear your thoughts on this because knowing what you know, knowing how dark that life can be, you know, we have 
experienced for the past 10 to 15 years. Maybe we're growing out of it. I can't tell yet. A real celebration around moms who drink. You know, this was something that was going on in Brooklyn when I was living there in 2006. You know, I would pass these boutique stores and it would say like, mommy cries. No, mommy drinks because you cry. Yes. You know, or mommy wants her bottle too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, this is an interesting intersection of consumerism and lack of of maternal help, you know, Mm -hmm. that women are too much on their own. Mm -hmm. What used to maybe, you know, you'd have a grandma or you'd have a sister or whatever is just like you alone in the in the big house. Right. And it's too much. Yep. And um alcohol really floods into that zone and becomes, you know, mommy juice. There, I mean, there is actually, I think, a wine called mommy juice. There is. I I bought it once or someone bought it for me. It's like, ha ha, you know. Ha ha. Yeah. And and if we're laughing about it, then it's not, nobody's got to think about this vitriol, this special vitriol that you're talking about and the stigma and the shame and what's flying in the face of nature, you know, it becomes very normalized. So as someone who did come out of that life, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see that. Yeah, man, I spent, I spent a lot of energy in the first bunch of years being really angry about it um, and writing about it a lot. And I still, and what were the kind of things that you were saying back then in well, your anger phase? Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know the, the the joke is, and this applies to everybody, but it's there's a special twist on it for mothers. It's like we love alcohol so much in this culture. We love it. We have this love affair with this drug. To the point where we don't see it as a drug. Absolutely. And so you're supposed to do it everywhere. And and it's this like wink and nod thing that we all like, oh, yay, you know. I mean, even at like my daughter's first, second, third, there were birth, no birthday, kids' birthday parties were even done without booze. And it was like, oh, thank God, you know, with all the parents. Sure, of even course. It's 11 in the morning. Yeah, the play date, the Chardonnay play dates. It was a whole totally. thing. And I and and so you're supposed to do it and and love it and talk about how much you love it and how much it's you know your like lifesaver, but you're not supposed to do it like that. Right. You're not supposed to love it that much. So there's this like where's that line? The tightrope. We don't we know it when we see it, but as soon as you cross that line. Man, you Bad are mom. out. <laughs> you are out. And you need to go figure that out somewhere else. And don't ruin the party for us. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, what a trap. What a trap. So I would come at it from just the straight up, like, can you fucking believe this messaging <laughs> angle? Yeah. You know, and... And everybody was like, yes, we can, because we live in this culture that basically says you have to drink all the time, which, right. I mean, I'm not saying people didn't hear your your message, but I, I think, a, I know from my experience, a lot of people don't really have ears 
for this. They don't. When something is part of the culture, you don't really question it. That's the weird thing. You know, when it's it's more than even part of the culture. It's like when something is just part of the script that you've had for so long, you, you don't question it. It's like, that's just how things are. So when I would start to sit, because a lot of my friends drink, most of my friends drink, most of my family drinks. So when I would start to say things, it was like, like almost like this, like what? Like this shock, like, oh, you're overreacting. It's not like, come on. Did you become like the annoying vegan at the uh, the steak party? I'm sure I was for a lot of people. But over time, it was like, if you if you actually got to sit down with someone who was had a you know who could hear you you could see a light bulb go off mm. when you would when you would bring to attention to the water we were swimming in and mm-hmm. go isn't this kind of weird right. like isn't it kind of weird that you have to explain not drinking yeah isn't it kind of weird that it's you have to apologize for not drinking. You have to, yes, exactly. You have to think about how you're going to explain and apologize for not drinking before you go to an event where you maybe aren't going to drink for whatever reason. And then if you aren't drinking, you have to have a really good reason, like so that people feel better. I, I went to an, uh, a meeting once where somebody said um, that whenever anybody asked her why she wasn't drinking, she just said she was pregnant. Yeah. She just lied and told people that she easier. was pregnant. It's easier to say you're pregnant. Right. And the follow-up this, conversation, like, then what? What When they ask, how's the, you know, how's how's the baby? Go? You're like, I don't know. It didn't <laughs> work out. Know. It didn't work out. I had a miscarriage. I mean, you know, like, it's easier, apparently, to, to spin this whole yarn yep. than to say, I am cutting back on my drinking. This isn't working for me anymore. Right. You have to be on medication. You have to be you know, on some diet, you, whatever there, that can't just be because you don't want to drink. Um, and if you have a problem, if you allude to the a problematic nature of your drinking, then it's like, Ooh, <laughs> back up, you know, no one wants to talk about that. So I talked about it from all those angles and, and like we have been saying the, the one, the, the part about the mom, that like invisible tightrope for mom, for the mom, moms are is very tricky because there's this extra element of, of like a lot of times it's the only time that women are socializing the moms are socializing is when they get together with their friends and they're having wine so like you not only lose you're just you're fucked you're you were lonely before and now you're really lonely and you the the added insult there is like oh it's my fault of course like because everything's have, the mom's fault. I don't have con- enough control. I don't love my kids enough. I don't if I if I loved them enough, I would I would XYZ, you know, all the things that we tell ourselves because that's what society would tell us. And yes, everything's the mom's fault too. <laughs> the other thing that I that I would talk about is this idea that they're either just alcoholics or and everybody else. Right. Right. So there's only two types of drinkers. You're either an alcoholic and you need to, to go into have a program or you're fine. Like you, no matter Drink how Drink your face you, off. You're good. You're good. You don't, you don't, you know, you don't need to worry about that label. And 
you know, we know now that that's not true. Like we, you know, substance abuse disorder. Well, we know. I don't think most people know. I think I don't that's think still largely know. the thinking uh, in our culture. But yeah, it's like you're you're either <laughs> you've either got the tag or you're fine and you can just drink your face off. And I talk a lot about that too because I saw over and over again people would write me these long, mostly women and mothers, write me these long emails explaining how they drank and when and where and when they didn't drink and how they could stop if they wanted and what they, you know, I stopped here and I stopped there and it was fine and I didn't feel bad. And like, can you tell me? Is oh, it yeah. Everybody wants the diagnosis. Is it bad enough? Yeah. Yeah. And so that I talked a lot about, like, what a what a weird question to and and else. people get i i spent years tortured over this and what totally. does it mean and and when do you t- this idea that there's going to be one day when you magically tip over yeah into being an alcoholic right like you've pickled yourself finally <laughs> there's just <laughs> one cute. day yeah. Yeah. you turn and and it's such a false binary you know i think my understanding is that the word really comes from and gets popularized by Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, for sure. They and owned the, the entire recovery space for since since there has been a recovery space. They defined it and they own all the language around it. Yeah, and they start in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've just celebrated their 75th anniversary. Um, and, I, you know, I would say they had a stranglehold. And I don't mean to make it sound like... Um, nefarious. I don't think they did it on purpose. This was a this was a combination of several different things. Um how it got to where if you weren't AA based, you basically got pushed out of funding. You yes. got pushed out of the media space. Yes. You know, there's all sorts of reasons for this. Um but but about I would say 10 years ago it starts opening up and we're starting to see differences. But, but you know, one of the things you mentioned was that, like, there is this false binary. And then, you know, if you go into a doctor or a psychiatrist or something, they actually don't use that. You know, they don't use alcohol or not. They use, is it alcohol? What is it? Uh, alcohol substance use abuse disorder. Yeah, disorder. AUD. Yeah. That's what they'll use now. But even, even you know, the mental health community and the medical community is still in that very much in the moderation is fine, you know, wine will help you relax. I think like it's, it hasn't caught up to where we are today. Mm-hmm. They still have, you know, I, any, any time I brought up drinking, it was like, well, you know, I, I'm sure it's fine. And <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is like, We've still got a long way to go. There's, There has been a definitely a major shift in the past 10, 15 years, like w- huge and still a long way to go. Still, you know, I have, I have a certain lens on things because – and you probably do because you're a sober person living in the world and you, you know, have a different view than you did now. But, I, but if I sort of go outside of my bubble, I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's still just totally normal to drink everywhere. Well, it, it it is. Uh, 
And, you know, you mentioned that uh, you keep saying, like, our culture. And I think one of the things I didn't understand is that heavy drinking, binge drinking in particular, is very much tied with Western affluent countries. Mm. You know, so you don't necessarily see it in Eastern cultures. You don't necessarily see it in Latin America. Yeah. Um, It is very much, you know, America, England, Mm -hmm. uh, Europe, Mm -hmm. and, of course, the Irish. Um, (laughs) Love them. Yeah, gotta love them. Isn't that funny? Like, the binge part of it. We don't need to go down this rabbit hole. Well, because, like, it's because it's because you have to have a lot of money to drink that way. Otherwise, yeah, you got to go to work. Yeah. I mean, you know, binge drinking is, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's a flex of having money and enough leisure time that you can just sit down and keep drinking. I mean, it's really interesting that the mm. people that tend to drink all day are the ones at the top of the economic ladder and the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Like you have to have the hours to be able to sit in a bar for or wherever, home, anywhere. Yeah. And spend 12 hours yeah. <laughs> drinking and then the, the next 24 recovering Ex- from exactly. it Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd never thought about that. You have to have a lot of wiggle room in your life. Um, But, uh, you know, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why you liked drinking. What made you a drinker? Yeah. Oh, so many things. I never talk about this part, right? I... um, the reasons I think, you know, I've pulled this apart so many times, but I definitely did have that general uncomfortable in your skin feeling always. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of like, I don't know if it was anxiety, but just energy. Like I have. Were you self-conscious about how you looked or like a weight or like, what was it? Definitely. When I got to be in high school, my body mm-hmm. was the thing that yeah. I was most concerned about. And, you know, I, I had developed an eating disorder at the end of high school that very much coincided with my drinking uh, starting in earnest. But before that, I had big feelings. Mm-hmm. I My parents got divorced when I was six and I started like pretending for everyone because I noticed like, oh, mm-hmm. if I pretend that I'm okay and, and I'm not upset – then my dad's in a better mood. And, and if, you know, I, I, for whatever reason, took on this role of like, I'm going to be the puppet and make, just make sure everyone else is okay. And that's really uncomfortable. Like it's a, it's an uncomfortable way to live. And I had a lot of just like internal sort of anxiety and angst and I didn't have anyone to talk to and none of us had any skills of like how to get that stuff out. And, you know, up until the end of high school, I had sports and I had other things to like pour myself into. But once I discovered it, the other part of it was I desperately wanted to be liked by men, Hmm. desperately, but I was a late bloomer. And so mm-hmm. I didn't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Like I saw my friends doing it, but I didn't know how to do that. And I thought, 
it's because of my body. I was in no way overweight, but I was like muscular. And I noticed that when I lost weight at, at the end of high school, I got a lot of attention. And that, but I was uncomfortable with that. Like I just still didn't know what to do with it. But when I drank, I could like let whatever was going to happen, happen. I could flirt and I could let myself be looked at and I could, you know, all that stuff. And that, man, that was the prize I was chasing. Mm-hmm. And I chased that prize all the way till the end of my drinking. Like it was always so much about who I'm chasing, chasing who who's chasing me, being comfortable ab- around men, being whatever I I needed to be, whether it's funny or flirtatious or forget that I didn't like my body <laughs> so yeah. I could be comfortable in it. Yeah. Um because I gained weight later, alcohol did whatever, it was that magic, you know, cure all so that I could be I could get attention and I could have sex and I could flirt. And that really, like when I went out with my girlfriends, I was looking for boys. Always. Yeah. I loved being with them, but that was the prize. That's what I wanted. So I think it, you've, yeah, I think you've described the drinking impulse for a lot of women and, and a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think. Yeah. And then it, then it, then it starts serving different roles, you know, right. the more, then I, you know, I eventually needed it just to be social. I needed it to to feel comfortable in any room. Um, I needed it to bond, I thought, with anyone I was with, coworker. It became just, you know, it was like that social lubricant plus um, when I, I was, I got so, I would think I could say by the time I was 25, I was really addicted hardcore. I needed it. I and, never and, went and how it. how did that manifest for you? I would have anxiety attacks if I went too many days without drinking. Mm-hmm. And I never I didn't drink during the day, but I drank per, I would say 5 out of 7 days a week. Um and I only didn't drink on some days just because I would feel so terrible, you know, that I would like have a day sober and then it's like, okay, I'm ready to go again. Um yeah, I had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of physical symptoms. I was always sweaty, always shaky, always nervous. Um, I just, I got to the point where I was like just getting through the part of the day, the the rest of my life, you know, work, whatever obligations I had to do so that I could get, so that I could drink. That's how it manifested. and And I just organized my life around that. So you you said that was at 25, but you didn't quit at 25. No, I quit at 35. So that's 10 years. Yeah. Yep. And then when I had my daughter at 31, it got really bad um, because you can't just fuck around (laughs) and, you know, sleep it off and be hungover. But I was so addicted at that point that, I mean, I I panicked when I got pregnant because – I didn't plan to get pregnant. I didn't know that I was until I was like seven weeks and I didn't even want to be in my marriage at that point. But so that was another layer of the panic. But I really realized when I got pregnant how much I relied on alcohol on a very regular basis to just regulate me. 
And so I would have, you know, anxiety well up or whatever. And I, I tried to drink, like I would have like a little bit of wine and it just was so, my body just rejected it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like forced sobriety through, but I was miserable. I was a, Mm -hmm. I was miserable. Was there any part of you that was like, okay, well, I've gone eight months or whatever. Um, when I have this child, I'm going to just keep quit. I'm going to keep quit. I could not wait to get back. And I joked about it and all my friends joked about it. I mean, we were young. I was 31, which was pretty young in Mm -hmm. New England, Boston to have a kid. I was the first one in my group. And no, I never, like I said earlier, I never tried to quit. I tried to like chill out (laughs) and not over drink, but I never tried to quit until that night after that night with my daughter never even occurred to me that I would have to. Like I had, I started to that spring get these like little inklings, like the alcohol is the thing, Laura, like you're going to have to, like, this is the thing that's the cause of all the chaos. Probably the number one question that people ask me about my drinking life is how did I know I had to stop? And I find it a very difficult question to answer because the truth is I knew that I needed to stop when I was 21 Mm -hmm. and I quit at 35. Mm -hmm. So there was 14 years of bargaining in between. And, you know, but I still find it a valuable question. Um, or the very least, I think it's valuable to answer people's curiosity, um, because they're often doing their own, running their own metrics on drinking. You know, why, why didn't you just cut back? Why wasn't that an option for you? You know, that seems like it would have been a good idea. Yeah, it is such a hard question to answer. Carolyn Knapp, I think, says like uh, in Drinking Love Story that alcoholism is a slow, elusive becoming. Like you Mm. know, but you can't know. You just, you know, it's that cognitive dissonance. Like I know that happens to some people and somewhere in me I'm very nervous about this, but also like that's not me. It's amazing what the human mind can do. Yeah. And also not just that's not me, but like, I'm going to change it. Like there's, to me, there was an endless optimism Yes, of, okay, that was yesterday. Today's going to be different. Yes. You know, and two things are going on, which is like, I can change it. I can fix it. And then history is the best predictor of the future, you know? So like, what is next year going to look like? It's going to look a lot like last year. (laughs) We're all like Dory, honestly, like in Finding Nemo and um, as as drinkers, like just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Like you can't see the behind you. You're like, it's fine. Everything's fine. Just keep swimming. I would, Sarah, I would say in the last five to seven years of my drinking, I also took Ambien every night. And so I would, and I would try, I would, I didn't know like how dangerous that was, first of all, but I would drink and then I would take Ambien and one of two things would happen. I would either pass out, like just done for the night, or it would like rev me up and in a blackout, I would drink a lot more. Mm-hmm. And it was on those nights where I would get revved up and drink a lot more that I that were the worst because I would send all kinds of texts. I would do crazy shit around the house. I would drive places. And so my thing would be, I would wake up and go, what the fuck? You're never going to do that again. We're never combining the two. 
again. Yeah. But by five o'clock, I was like, mm, I don't know. That was dramatic. It Why did you so need bad. to do that? And, you know, once I had it, once I started again, put that first glass of wine down, it was like complete erasure. Just, it was gone from my memory. So I had intentions. If I look at my journals, I was very aware that drinking was a thing. I talked about it constantly, but it was always like, I want to drink, but not get so drunk. That was the most that I dream. That's the The most that I tried to like limit, but I didn't want to be moderately buzzed. There was just never enough. Like I wanted to be fucked up, but I didn't want to black out. You know, I wanted to be, but as if you can control that, like I was very much like you, I was a blackout drinker. Mm -hmm. So why didn't I? Because I couldn't. Like, why Why don't any of us? I just couldn't. I couldn't. So was it the story with your daughter that got you sober? No. That's a story that started me on the path to sobriety because I, you know, my back was just against the wall, but I didn't get sober until over a year later. But in that year, so between like, you know, mid 2013 and end of 2014, I spent most of that year sober. Um. And the drinking, you know, people were watching me at that point. My family was watching me. Like I was not welcome to drink in in those spaces. And when I did drink, it got really dark and really bad. So I had like a DUI, another major car crash at the end of 2013 where I was hospitalized. I was hospitalized two other times. So when I drank, it was mostly alone and things got really dark. Um, so the end, the very end of my drinking was very anticlimactic. Like you, it was just like, I was so tired mm-hmm. and I was sick of myself. Like the only thing that I did differently that morning and, you know, after the last time I drank was like, you're never telling yourself that you're not drinking anymore again. Like that's, we're just not going to say those words cause you're so full of shit. Yes. That I can't even hear you say them again. Yes. Fuck you. You know, fuck this. You're just going to not drink today. You know how to do that. Like we've done this. And if you want to drink tomorrow, fine. I so relate to that because that was one of the things for me was I couldn't hear myself lie anymore. Ugh. Yeah. The the self-hatred and the self just like, disgust immolation like self-immolation like it was just like i just wanted to like tear my own hair out it was really i got very self-destructive yeah um you said that you felt that you were addicted at 25 and and i wonder wanted to pause there and and ask a little bit about what you meant by that because i think one of the things i've heard you talk about you know, is what do we mean? Uh, what is an addiction? And, you know, is this a physical, is this a physical addiction? Is this a behavioral addiction? So much for me was it seemed like it was a mental obsession. Yeah. And it was a behavioral deep groove, mm. you know, that that every one of my behaviors had these habits kind of like grown around them. Yep. And then I do think there was a physical component for me in the sense that when I finally quit at 35, I did start having panic attacks, mm-hmm. which is a very common mm-hmm. uh, withdrawal symptom. Yep. But that was, people really tend, when they talk about addiction, they tend to focus on the physical aspect. 
Yeah, that's true. They talk about like, did you have the DTs? And I'm like, no, because it wasn't 1930 and I wasn't drinking moonshine. (laughs) You know, like it's another day of wine and roses. Right. Right. You have to picture this like shivering, like, yeah. uh, yeah. Um, That's true. What? You know, and I've heard different people um, in this space talk about it as a, you know, a learning disorder or, an, you know, allergy is the first word that the big book ever used. They didn't, they never used the word addiction. Right. So, so talk to me a little bit about how you understand the word addiction. Yeah, it definitely, I totally agree. It was a mental obsession for me. Like the way AA describes it is actually very spot on to my experience that it's yeah. threefold, you know, physical mental and spiritual physical i don't i don't f- think i was physically addicted or at least it didn't feel that way until around 25 you know my later 20s where i would like i needed it to feel calm yeah um and i would experience like panic attacks and things like that if i didn't drink for more than a few days but that uh, the the mental obsession was there from 17. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember, I've told this story a bunch of times, but I remember it so clearly, my high school graduation party being like 110 pounds, mad eating disorder, and so much anxiety, all the things I talked about men, and I was going away to college, and my family was fucked up. And I walked into my graduation party at my family's restaurant and I had all this anxiety swirling around and I poured myself that first Bacardi Limon and Diet Coke, sucked that down. Second one, sucked that down. And then third one, I I was drunk and I felt so good. And I was like, what was all that anxiety for? And I felt all that like superpower energy that drinking gave me. And I remember thinking to myself so clearly, I'm going to stay like this. Because if I can just stay like this, everything's going to be okay. And I'm like, I remember that so well and just thinking like, this is the answer. So the mental obsession started then. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I was always like, as long as I knew when the next time I would be going out was, as long as I knew that it was imminent, you know, because everyone, you know, we always went out on Thursdays or I would drink with my roommate on Tuesday or whatever. I was fine. I was mentally fine. I was settled. But I had to have that in my mind. And if if it would have been taken away for some reason, I would have been real anxious. Um, and then the spiritual part is harder to like quantify and talk about, um, you know, I, the way that they talk about it in, in AA is that you start to become sort of spiritually bankrupt, um, or at least is the way I heard it. You you feel this like deep soul level emptiness, like you're disconnected from a higher power or, or your, let's say, your wisest self or some like really deep part of you is is disconnected. And I I don't know that I felt that always or anything like that. But I did feel like where I felt is the things that I did when I was drinking were so against who I thought I was. Like, for example, in my marriage, I almost immediately started cheating on my husband when we got married. And that was a shock to me. I didn't know that that's who I was. Right. And I lied all the time. 
I mean, you have to lie when that's happening. Yeah. And I became a fucking liar, like yeah. a, a, a shocking liar. Like I couldn't believe the depths, how easy I would lie. Right. And so that was like the spiritual part of it for me, of the, of the addiction. And that's, yeah, I, I mean, I, w- I don't know that I could, would add much more onto what, <laughs> onto what AA provided. It always felt very true to me. Speaking of AA, what's your relationship with the double A's? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think people uh, usually have a whole hassle of um, assumptions mm-hmm. or maybe personal experiences or whatever about AA. Um and there's been an awful lot of other places that have opened up. And I know for myself, I always find myself being a little bit like, AA's great. It's good for some people. Then also there are the, the other things. And, you know, um, but what's what's your experience? Yeah, I where I am today is, and I think where I kind of always was, if I think about it, AA was my first community. It was my first exposure to sober people. It totally saved my life. Um and I was squirmy in those meetings. I was annoyed. And why? I, I'll get to that. So, but, but from afar, not even from afar, like I don't know how it's possible to both revere something and respect it, but also be so annoyed by it. But that's how I feel by about parts of AA. Like, I, the longer I'm sober, the more I feel like AA got it right in so many essential ways. And I lean on the axioms of that program. They feel more true as time goes on. I learned things there that I still practice all the time and that I've brought into the sober you know, community that I've started. But if I go to meetings and sit there, I'm annoyed. <laughs> Like I'm itchy and I don't like it. I'm annoyed by the way people all talk the same. I'm annoyed by what feels like very limited language. I'm annoyed by the like sort of bummerish fear-based vibe that I always get. Like that bugs me. And I still respect the hell out of it. Well, you know the solution to your experience of not feeling comfortable in AA. More AA? More AA. <laughs> That's yeah. our answer for everything. <laughs> right. You come in there with any problem. Yeah. There, uh, AA loves to recommend AA. They do. Yeah. And, and so, I uh, love them too. I love them too. And and I'm very irritated by them sometimes. But it's, um, you know, it's been, a, it's an incredibly profound and robust program. Yes. Agree. At the end of the day, it's a yes. It's a yes for me. It's like, yeah. Like, I can see why people who um, just shut down at, at the mention of God because they have, you know, church trauma or they just just can't stomach it. I can see why they. It's just a hard no. Um, but outside of that, like, I think there's something in there, you know, that they just captured some really true spiritual wisdom, like ancient spiritual wisdom is nothing complicated about it. And that's what almost makes it so amazing. 
Well, and even if you don't identify as being an AA, I mean, if you read these recovery memoirs, and there's got to be like 20 or 30 of us, 40, 50 mm-hmm. of us at this time, at this mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. I don't think there's one of us that's not cribbing some wisdom from the big book. Totally. Absolutely. I, You know, it's so funny. I, <laughs> I saw someone, I was reading someone's Substack, I think, yesterday. And they were like, Glennon Doyle. And this is has nothing to do with Glennon Doyle. But it's it was like Glennon Doyle said, it doesn't matter how much you drink, it's how you drink. And it sent shivers down my spine. And I had this epiphany. And I was like, dude, Glennon Doyle didn't say that. Like, that, no, go to a fucking meeting. That's an AA. No. I, I hear that. And every but every one of us and and, and you can't blame. It. I'll hear it from Anne Lamott, too. You know, mm-hmm. Like Anne Lamott says, you know, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's fun and then it's fun with problems and then it's just problems. And I'm like, no, she doesn't. No, she didn't. That's AA. Yeah. And there, there's or so the many. Or do the next right thing. Okay. Do the, oh, the next right thing. Oh yeah, exactly. That was like this major punchline in, you know, a, a very successful author's book in the past few years. And people were like, wow, like, oh my God. <laughs> Isn't it a song in Frozen 2? <laughs> is it really? It I'm pretty like- sure. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. And, you know, because I hear people talk about it at meetings. and They're like, those people have got to be sober. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You. It's funny that it, it, it's funny um, the way that it creeps into so many things. And yeah, and I, you know, I get an, I used to get annoyed like. When I'd see, but I've done it. I've done it. Oh, I've full on done my, it. My, if you read, we are the luckiest, or push off from here, please. Like one of the main axioms in push off from here, the main like practices of sobriety, is, is service. Like that, I learned service in AA. Mm-hmm. I did not. And what that. do you mean when you say service? Showing up and participating in a community. That's all. Like literally, it's listening to someone when they're talking, sharing in a meeting. It's sometimes it's having a job, you know, as part of a community where it, why would I want to do any of these things? Right. <laughs> no, I know. Um because I don't know about you, but my if I'm trapped in the confines of my mind, which is where I lived most of the time, I am the most miserable, isolated, special, you know, person in the world. And one of the surefire ways to get out of that is to like (laughs) look out from your own two eyes and go, oh, there's an entire world out here and people are actually struggling the same way I am. And they might need, you know, it's not so bad. And just get out of your own head. Just get out of your own head. Like that self-obsession of whatever this is, is so real and service is the way out. But it's I tricky. Think that, it's a I tricky think that was word. one of the big epiphanies for me. Me too. Um, and I didn't like it at all. I didn't like the idea of service work. Because an AA usually shows up as like, you're going to bring the milk every Wednesday. And I'm like, what? Yeah. This is, why? <laughs> right. What right. does this have to do with anything? But you did you do those jobs? Oh, yeah. And yeah. then I, I one day I forgot the milk and I freaked out, absolutely lost my mind. Mm-hmm. And then I scrambled to the 
place and I got the milk and it was fine, but it was just like, you know, my people pleasing and anxiety was so out of control for Mm -hmm. so long. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that was nice about the milk was that I became the milk person. That's right. And so everybody got to know me, whereas I had been very reluctant to let anybody get to know me. I didn't talk to them, you know, but suddenly it was like, oh, Sarah brings the milk. That's right. I became the chip girl for like the Saturday night meeting. So it forced me to go to Saturday night meetings when I always would want to skip it because it was like an insult that I had to go to a meeting on Saturday night. And I also didn't want to know anybody. I didn't want anyone to know me. But when I was a chip girl, not only do they know you, but like you are hugging people. Like you give them a chip and you hug them and you're like, oh, (laughs) it's like this. It's so simple. It's almost stupid. But yeah, service. And service can look, you know, doesn't have to be at an AA meeting, obviously. But um, I, in my, the community that I started, I tell people like opening your mouth in a meeting to share is an act of service. It's not about you. And you can see people just go, plus it takes the pressure off having like an amazing share. Right. Right. You're doing it to check a box because my sponsor told me to do this. Right. I used to say that when I was first in AA. I'm talking because my sponsor told me I had to. And so I don't want to say anything really. I just need you to know that. I, I don't want to know do that. This. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite moments in AA early on, because I, I really did hate it in the beginning. And there was this guy and he was like, he he raised his hand and he was like, I hate this place and you're all in a cult and you brainwashed me and I fucking hate it here. <laughs> and then he was done and everyone was like, thanks for your share. <laughs> like, keep going back. <laughs> like watching this guy lose his mind and call the whole place a cult. <laughs> and then everyone's just like, thank you. Um, I was just like, what's going on here? Like, this is wild. It's too wild. Yeah, it's so good though. That's there. I have that. I have not laughed. I think that is one of the coolest things is the amount uh, of belly laughter in a meeting. It's just like yeah. it blows your mind. There's nothing like that. Um, tell me a little bit about how you perceived drinking changing during the pandemic. Mm. And you know, you and I were both sober, but that hit. Mm. And I mean, I, you know, as soon as that hit, I was like, I'm so glad I'm sober. Oh my god. <sighs> And not newly sober, like I oh my have god, a practice, yeah, mm. um, yeah. What do you what do you think happened there? And 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 then maybe you can tell us about sort of how you developed your own program through that. Oh sure. So God, what happened there? I had the same exact feeling, Sarah. I was like, that was like one of my very first thoughts. Is people are going to be drinking so much, and. I would too. And I'm just so glad I have some practice at like being with myself. Yeah. Because this is scary. Um, I think it was like in a lot of ways the first time that a lot of people had to face the reality of their lives because mm-hmm. they were physically forced to be at home. And so all of a sudden, you know, you're looking around, you're like, oh, this is who I'm married to, or this is my relationship situation, or this is the state of my home this is the state of my body. This is a state of, you know, the, the walls I live in. And that was either like a okay thing, or I think more often it was like a, what the fuck yeah. thing. Um, and 
you know, if it's a what the fuck thing, you're going to reach for some medication for that. And drinking. Yeah. And like conveniently, all the restaurants in your neighborhood have turned into to go and delivery booze services. That's right. And liquor stores were not closed, you know, and online delivery uh, of alcohol was was a thing by then. So, yeah, I had friends who who drink who I would say drink like normally, moderately, whatever. And a couple months into the pandemic, they were like, um, this is, I, I'm scared. Like I'm, this is every, every night, like me, you know, I don't know how to end the day mm-hmm. because I'm working in my closet and my partner is working in our kid's bedroom and it's, you know, the kids are home all day. And so I don't, there's no like break between the work day and the like dinner time and whatever. And so we started drinking every day and I went from drinking two days a week to seven. Um, so yeah, I think, and, and as we know, women were the shock absorbers of the pandemic. It's a good way to say it. Hmm. So they, you know, a lot of them stopped working, or they, you know, assumed all the the care of the of the home and all that invisible work. And you know, if if someone in the partnership was going to quit the job, it was mostly women who did that. I'm not making this up. This was like pretty well researched. But yeah. Um. So what's going to hold that up? You know, a lot of drinking. Mommy juice. Mommy juice. Yeah. So what I saw, uh, and then, then there's the whole thing about like, if you relied on AA at physical meetings, going to physical meetings, cause no, yeah. AA didn't do online meetings then. Um, those shut down. And I, and when it was when the local chapter of mine shut down that I went, Oh fuck. It wasn't when like the grocery store shut down or the bank or the school or whatever. It was that, that email, getting that email. I was like, no way. Mm-hmm. And I thought, where are all these people going to go? Um, so that's, I started hosting just like free online meetings, not AA meetings. I just made up a format and because I figured I could do that. I know how to, to lead a meeting and I have a, a community. So I started doing that and then like you came and spoke at one, but like 200 people, 300 people, 400 people started to show up. I couldn't believe you asked me to come speak at that. And I was like, oh yeah, sure, Laura, no problem. I'll do anything for you. It was like 500 people. I I hadn't been, the last time I was in that kind of front of that kind of crowd, I was with Chelsea Handler. (laughs) I'm like, what is going on? Because there was nothing going on. Like, hey, like. AA hadn't gotten it together yet. So there were, there were like, they were like, oh, I guess we have to make online meetings now, you know? You have a crazy big community though. And, and, you know, it's funny. I've done a lot of book events with people, uh, like a countless, countless. Yeah. And I was really, I mean, you had a big audience for We Are the Luckiest. It was big. In Austin. You don't even live in Austin. No, it was, I, I was also surprised because, I, it was, a, you know, I hadn't done book events. I had done like teaching retreats and workshops in various cities. And I knew that there were people in Austin. But what happened was like, I have been right. I had been writing and doing and podcasting. So people like knew me and knew my voice for like seven years before that. And so when the book came out, it was like, you know, they had, they had a connection to me. You had planted many seeds across 
Yeah. Like the Johnny Appleseed of podcasting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You had planted many seeds and then you saw what you had grown. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Austin was a big crowd. I do remember that. Yeah. And there were like super fans in there that were like, what? I mean, I shouldn't make fun of your super fans. They were super (laughs) cool, but they were like beside themselves to meet you, you know? And I was just like, whoa. I like thought I was doing you a favor. And later I was like, (laughs) Oh, like she's helping my brand. She's definitely, like, definitely elevating my brand to be with you. Um, but you know, back to this, this meeting that had like 500 people, like, like, I mean, what did they want? What were they looking for? I don't think they knew. I think that they, well, one of two or three things was happening. Some of the, a lot of these people were AA people that yeah. didn't have nowhere, anywhere else to go. And they were like, sure, I'll go to a meeting. Why not? I know Laura. Sounds like it might be good. And a lot of people were either trying to get sober or had been sober, and, but had never like had a community of any kind. And they were like, seems like I'm home now. Seems like a good time to go to a meeting. I'll try it out. And because they knew, because it wasn't an AA meeting and because of, you know, the type of stuff that I guess I'd put out there over the years, it seemed like a, an easy, safe space to just show up and see what happens. I think a lot of people were also just like, I'm home. Hmm. Why not? I'll just show up and turn my camera off and see what happens. Yeah, wh- why not? Yeah. And then I I was actually, uh, I hosted like a community hangout for my Substack yesterday. And there was a lot of people who were in those first meetings in mm-hmm. that, that hangout. And they were like, oh, this feels like those first days of your meetings in the pandemic. I think it was just, it was like a moment for all of us to, we were all there for the same reason and the world was falling apart. So there's this yeah. thing that happens with tragedy where you just feel like you reach in, mm-hmm. you lean in. So I think that's what was happening. And then you know, I, I created a format and people seemed to like it. There wasn't, you know, a, there was no program attached to it. It was just like, hey, we're going to talk about this thing. And, and you get it. Like, for, if you've never sat in a room and heard people talk about this thing that you live with all the time and these thoughts that are in your head and these feelings that you have and you hear people talk about it for the first time, it blows your mind. Yeah. Um. So that's what was happening. Yeah. And then I, I did that for six weeks and I was like, I did it every day, a couple times a day. And I was like, okay, I'm tired <laughs> and I, I have other stuff to do. Like I, you know, my book had just come out. My, I was homeschooling my daughter. I, I was like, okay, I'll go back to, you know, my life now. And enough people were like, please, like I would pay a little bit. I would, you know, I would please figure out how to keep this going. And so I hustled and found a bunch of people to lead meetings and put it together and launched it. Um, few, you know, a couple of weeks later in May of 2020. And at this point, you had monetized sobriety. I know. Insert Evil. ominous noise. Evil. <laughs> um, you know, both of us have. And, uh, you know, frankly, by selling books about our sober life, we had done that. But, but when you launched that club, I remember it being a little bit controversial. Oh, yeah. I got some awful messages awful messages what what did they say uh oh you you know this is snake oil like you hooked everyone in by trying to be this good hearted person and that's a good point though she's making free. a good point yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then you t- 
turn around and like I had like I had plotted it from the beginning, you know. You How did you feel and... about that? I I had heard enough criticism about the things I was saying about sobriety. Um, and I was mm-hmm. sort of critical, a little critical of AA, not a lot, but um I had I had charged I had created a class called We Are the Luckiest that was not like how to get sober, but sort of how to like maybe enjoy your life in sobriety I, um, about a year before. And mm-hmm. so I had already started to hear these things. I had mm-hmm. heard them enough that it wasn't a shock. I knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. And so I already had made peace with that. I mean, not that it didn't annoy the shit out of me and not that I didn't question myself because I have, I, and I did. Um, but you know, it was, it's a pretty easy thing to refute in my view. We pay for all kinds of things for our health, mental health that are way more frivolous, you know, than, than a mutual support community for sobriety. We stick, you know, I stick a needle in my face every two months to for Botox and pay. Oh, you do? I'm gonna have to talk about that yeah, yeah. with you sometime. I've never and done like hundreds of dollars. Does anyone yeah. get mad about that? Does anyone get mad, you know, at at men for charging in, in in this industry? I have never seen that, which is an interesting point. Or like do do men, you know, do we bitch about the that you have to pay for anything that is like beauty related. Yeah. No, because that's like fine. Why would that be free? That's crazy. Right. So, and, and, and even, you know, beyond that, you know, do you expect your therapy to be free? Do you expect, and that's sort of tricky because some people do, but I, you know, was very, I have and still have, you know, I charged $9 a month for like 40 meetings a, a month. So it was like nothing, right. like 50 cents or something. I've continually worked to make it very accessible. I do I do believe, I do wish that we lived in a world where everyone could get the help they need for addiction for free. Yeah. I wish we lived in that world, um, yeah. but we don't. And so what's the alternative? We just people don't start things and try no you have to be trust funded or independently wealthy right and then refuse all monetary rewards right so i hired i now have a, a team of 14 people and oh four, my god do you really yeah contract like they host meetings not full time people okay wow and i have still. three full time employees oh my god and it's a it is a massive amount of work to run the community that we run. We have an, an amazing app. We have like so much shit going on in the community. And my and the people that work on this team are so dialed in and they care so much about what it is we're doing. Because there's a, there is a gross way to do this. And then there's a not gross way to do this. You know, I'm not sitting there going like, we need to hit 
10,000 members by next yeah. month. So that oh my I God, could- that'd be hilarious. If you were like one of those like, <laughs> like totally tyrannical, like bosses right. that was like going around, like, you know, Go trying find to give them- people. Yeah. Third set is a stack of set of steak. And everyone gets a bonus. Yeah. yeah. It would um, be great. But, um, gosh, every time I talk to you, I'm reminded that you are a marketing person mm-hmm. and I'm so not like, mm-hmm. Your ability and and you're like you've got like MBA brain, mm-hmm. and I so don't. And your ability to create kind of like mini, you know, businesses and and like run this little t- you know small boutique company, and mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm so impressed by it. But I just I'm just gonna stay here with the cat. <laughs> You know, <laughs> podcasting from the closet. <laughs> well, um, I love your way, and I, yeah, I love, I like, I like creating things. I think it's fun. Yeah, and you're really good at them. I've sent people to the Luckiest Club. I'm, you know, I will send people to whatever, whatever you do, yeah. because I think you've got great, great energy and juju. I think. Well, Thank you. I, I don't know that I use juju right, um, but uh, I meant juju bees, right, and. When I think, I think when people look at you, when I work with young women or even older women who are like, I want to get sober, but I'm scared, Mm -hmm. you know, I point them toward you because it's like, I want them to see like, these are all the things that might grow in your sober life Mm -hmm. because you were not a writer, but before you got sober, no, you were not running these businesses. You were not doing these things, you know, um, it's, I, I think to watch one of the the things that recommends sobriety more than probably anything else is to stick around in sobriety and watch other people evolve. Yes. My God. Yes. Yes. You and get to see people change. When do you get to see people change? Literally never. Right. And And I was thinking earlier – you know, you were telling those stories about yourself being such a liar. You know, you cheated in your marriage. You, you know, have some like behavior as a mom that is, that's got to be painful. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm thinking about like, if I knew you back then, and I, I'm actually probably wouldn't say this, but I, somebody could say, like, that's a shitty person. Oh, yeah. I was in, in a lot of ways. Like, if you, listed the things. I wrote this piece about friendship yesterday because friendship is one of those areas where I was a shitty friend in my my drinking and even not in my drinking. Like I think everyone has been a shitty friend at some, you know, Mm -hmm. there's proof of that. Yeah. Um, And also proof of being a good friend. I mean, I wasn't always shitty, um, but I was shitty enough. And I, I don't know if you feel this way, but like when I got when I sort of got caught, um, because my husband found out about the, you know, infidelity enough and my everyone knew about the drinking enough that I was like, fuck it. My reputation's burned, so I guess I'm free now. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of liberating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, but I think it i think it kind of crunches the brain a little bit to people to say okay wait so like all you did was stop drinking and then you became a good friend right well but you know that that's not it i mean yes if you look at the equation it's like yes you remove the alcohol and totally different life 
That is true. There's a lot of work in there. Mm-hmm. But it was, in some sense, that simple. When people come to you, a lot of times they want change. Um, we've talked about problems that we've had with drinking. What are some of the other problems that you've struggled with? <laughs> I'm laughing because it's like, yeah, the drinking was in hindsight such a a smaller thing. I mean, it wasn't. It was very difficult to stop. But underneath was th- that man, like men's stuff that I talked mm-hmm. about. That was just waiting for me as soon as I got sober. And it got really bad after I got sober. My need for attention, my chasing, my obsession, what do you, whether you call it love addiction or whatever, I don't know. But yeah, I'm so torn on that phrase. But me um, too. But it, if you look at like the behavior and the sort of consequences, yeah, it yeah, tracks. Yeah, and I also have had interventions of friends the way that I did with drinking. Like my mm. friends were like, "I will no longer listen to this." Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we're going to, I'm definitely going to be talking to you as I write this third book. Cause that's what this is. It's all about. That's great. Um, so great. There hasn't been a good love addiction book. Mm-mm. And you know, there's elements of that in my second book, but it's not, it's about so many other things, but you know, I mean, there, I, yeah. I, I dipped a toe in the world of what's called SLAA, which is sex and love addicts anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, that program was not it. You know, I think it, once again, I mean, it does help a lot of people and I've talked to them. The meetings I was going to didn't really hit the spot for me. Yeah. Um, but there is something in there. There was a deep need that had been quieted because of the alcohol or at least at least distracted. Yes. And it was just, it exploded. Yes. Yes. And it's, you see that happen to a lot of people. In yeah. spread, men and women, and you see that. So, yeah, it's a thing, and that was a thing. I mean, that, and I sort of felt like once I when I got sober, I was like, I'm going to give myself permission to do everything that I. And I didn't see anything wrong with it. Put it that yeah. way. Yeah, I was newly divorced. Yeah, I was lonely. I had just gotten sober. Like, fuck it, you know. Um. So that that really almost took me down. And I don't know if it would have caused me to drink again, but it was um, an emotional like rock bottom. I was strung out by like year four. And I started to do therapy specifically around this issue and all kinds. I finally did the steps and started to do other things. But that was a big hard thing for me that took – and I, and I'm still in it. Like I'm not over it. You know, I'm in a good, healthy relationship that blows my mind now. But um, I still see some of that stuff come up. I have to still do maintenance on that. Mm-hmm. Um, body stuff and food stuff like that was lingering in the background too. Well, that was there from the beginning. That was there from the beginning, and I, and that showed up. But it it is never. I don't even know how to talk about that because it's not something that haunts me or that's always present, but it's like a little, um, I have to constantly counsel myself to like not go on a diet or not chase some kind of fix or ideal. Ozempic. Ozempic. Laura, have you heard about Ozempic? Oh my God. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know the fun- fucked up thing though, Sarah, is like, I get it. I'm like, oh, girl, I told, I said on the podcast after the Oscars, I was like, should I go on Ozempic? And then a lot of the listeners were like, no, don't do it. And then some of them were like, yes, you should. And it, <laughs> yeah. it just, it starts to turn the wheels in my head. Totally. Like I, could I lose 15 pounds? That 15 pounds that I feel like I still need to lose? Like, sure. So I get why people do it. man. And I did have those thoughts a couple times, like, could I do it? Do I want to do it? And I always end up like, stop. No, you don't. But I get it. Um, Those are the big things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are the big things. Friendships. That's a recent new one that I'm exploring because that seems like the last sort of painful area that I have, that I don't really like to talk about. And I noticed when I read Christy Tate's memoir, BFF, I was like, I cried the whole time. And I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> there's something here. You know, oh. this is an area where there's a lot of like tenderness and that's okay. So I, I think there's some exploration there. It's a sweet book. I like Christy. Um, mm-hmm. She and I have the same agent and, and uh. she's, She's the, if people don't know who she is, she wrote a book called The Group, uh, Mm -hmm. which was a Reese Witherspoon pick and became like a big bestseller and was about her group therapy. And she's got a new book about female friendships. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, you know, she's very, very winning writer. Um, When people come to you and they want change, um, what do you find, what do you think, it's a hard question, but it's like, what do they misunderstand about change? Yeah. That's such a great question. Uh, I think how much it actually takes. Um, and this is a big one. I think people think they can like beat the shit out of, out of themselves into changing. Totally. That's what we're told. That's what our culture like, you know, very much pushes. It's like, just fucking do it. Like pull yourself up, you know, get a, like just um, lean in harder, you know, and that's just not how actual change works. Real change is always very, very, it go, it brings you to the bone, you know, like you have to really be burned down. Um, And it's hard to describe. Uh, it's like if I could have gotten sober with all the other ways that I had coped and functioned in the past, I would have, but I couldn't. Meaning if I could like privately do it alone <laughs> in the like confines of my own mind. 100%. If, I, if I could um, work it, like I have a tremendous ability to like push through, mm-hmm. right? If I could have just applied enough energy or force or s- intelligence or problem solving, mm-hmm. like I would have done that. Um, if I could have charmed my way into it, I could I would have done that if I could have read my way into it, just absorbed enough information. But none of those things worked. So I think there's this under this misunderstanding about what it actually takes and how I don't want to say how hard it is. It is that, but it's like just different than you think it's gonna be. I'm always surprised by how most major change in my life came very quietly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, acceptance. What Cheryl Strait had that line like acceptance is a small, quiet room. Yeah, it's very much like that. Yeah, that's it. And 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 I would always think that it was going to be this clashing crescendo, (laughs) 
and and I did have some of those, but then those would just sort of be like, and I'd go back to drinking, or I'd go back to the guy, or I'd go back to yep. whatever, you know. Um, yeah, it goes largely unnoticed day after day, and it's just you making that sort of quiet choice to sort of own your life in a different way. Mm. Quiet is a really good way to put it. I think that's a good place to stop. Yeah, that was so fun. Laura McCallan, thank you so much for coming on Singles Edition of Smoke Em If You Got Them and tell us your book again. Push off from here. Nine Essential Truths to Get You Through Sobriety and Everything Else. And you have a Substack too. I do. It's called Love Story. I love that. Thank you. I love writing it. Thanks. Thank you. Bye.